you're looking for insight into the vast world of information security, then you're in the right place. Welcome to the InfoSec Sync podcast, the only top-rated information security podcast committed to helping you enhance your cyber skill set. Listen in on conversations with world-class information security thought leaders, subject matter experts, authors, and more as we exchange ideas, best practices, and discuss the latest trends, threats, strategies, and solutions for your success. So get ready to get in sync with your host, Nick Thomas. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the InfoSexSync podcast, where we keep you in sync with the ever-changing world of information security. I'm your host, Nick Thomas, and this week, we continue with the National Cyber Summit interviews. The National Cyber Summit is the nation's most innovative cybersecurity technology event, offering unique educational, collaborative, and workforce development opportunities for industry visionaries and rising leaders. The National Cyber Summit will be held September 28th through the 30th in Rocket City, Huntsville, Alabama. First up is an interview with Frank Salufo, Director of the McRae Institute for Cybersecurity and Critical Infrastructure Protection at Auburn University. And I am joined right now by Mr. Frank Salufo. He is the uh, Director of the McCrary Institute for Cybersecurity and Critical Infrastructure Protection at Auburn University. Welcome, Frank. Thank you, my pleasure. So, Frank, can you tell me a little bit about um, the McCrary Institute and what you guys do there? Sure, so the McCrary Institute, uh, and I've only been at Auburn for a few months, but it's been an amazing run thus far. What we're trying to do is marry up theory with practice and ensure that there's an end-to-end solution set around cybersecurity issues from a policy perspective, a research perspective, a technology perspective, underpinned by uh, scholarship and, and of course education. Wow, and about how many people do you have em- employed there doing all those Depends things? Depends how you define <laughs> uh, employed. We have a lot of people that are part of this self-enlisted uh, army. The okay. actual team itself is quite small. Okay. So, Uh, We have a think tank that is in Washington, D.C. that focuses on our policy-related issues, and we've got the Cyber Research Center on campus, which includes a number of faculty led by uh, David Umfress, who does some phenomenal work. Uh, and then obviously we have students around some of that as well. Okay, so you're looking at ICS and SCADA and big picture threats? We're, we're trying to understand first the adversary, look mm-hmm. through the eyes of the enemy and understand their intentions, their capabilities, their modus operandi, what TTPs we need to be focused on, but then also looking at it uh, obviously from a secure design perspective and and looking at what people would call the the national critical functions to include industrial control systems and ICS. SCADA, since the the McCrary uh, Institute was, uh, the initial gift came from the Alabama Power Foundation, so the grid is at the very top of our (laughs) list, and I think the country's list, so it's pretty encompassing. Okay, and you're one of the speakers here today. Can you uh, tell us about what you spoke about? Sure, so I, I had the privilege and opportunity to speak uh, uh, at the, the summit earlier today um, and gave a bit of a snapshot in terms of where the threat environment is and where we need to focus our resources and attention first. Okay. Uh, and then sort of pulled back and questioned some of our response mechanisms right now, which I consider to be a little reactive. We tend to 
we tend to look at the world a little backwards and, and, and tend to, um, and I feel we need to be a little more proactive in terms of how we respond to the broader set of cyber issues. So mm -hmm. we've let the adversary define our strategy. We ought to be defining the strategies, not episodes, not incidents, but rather what do we want to achieve and how do we shape our best way. So we're st you're sort of going from a pa past to a present, to the future, to the future. where you want to be proactive instead of reactive. Absolutely, and, and much of the space right now, there's some phenomenal work going on, but uh, we, we've got to try to push the needle in, in terms of uh, not only backfilling uh, and responding to the crisis du jour mm -hmm. and the uh, vulnerability of the minute, but rather try to, to shape the field in our best interest. Okay, and I know- A little bit of offensive cyber in there yeah. too. That's really great stuff. I know. I know you have a, a wide, uh, big, huge bio slash resume. Yeah, I display varying degrees of ignorance <laughs> in lots of subjects. Uh, can you give us um, some of the things you've done? Sure. So um, I, I've been at Auburn for about six months. Prior to that, I ran a think and do tank at George Washington University. That was part counterterrorism, part cyber, part homeland. I came to GW from the White House where I worked for President Bush. I was a special assistant to, to the president for counterterrorism and homeland security okay. issues. Before that, worked at a think tank in Washington, the Center for Strategic and International Studies for, I believe it was seven, eight years on, in the pejorative, it was drugs, thugs, and bugs, whether cyber <laughs> or biological. So looking at transnational threats. Okay. So very well-rounded in threat intelligence, Display I Display a lot say. of ignorance and lots of <laughs> subjects. And I sit on a number of groups for the government currently Awesome. As well. So can, can you tell us how uh, someone could learn more about the McCurry Institute at Auburn? Yeah, so I mean, firstly, uh, our website is still a work in progress. Okay. But uh, like any, anyone else, start with the web. Mm -hmm. And if you go to Auburn University, mccrary.edu is a good place to start. Uh, we also have a social media presence, which uh, uh, through our Twitter handle is at, at Auburn Cyber. Um, and, then, uh, um, and then in terms of contacting us, we're on campus, we're always available, and we're trying to become that belly button for all the great work that Auburn is doing around cyber-related efforts. All right, so Frank Salufo, thank you so much My for pleasure. coming by Thanks and sharing time me. with us. I Thanks. appreciate it. Thank you. Next up is Mr. Gary Warner. Gary is the Director of Research at the University of Alabama at Birmingham Center for Information Assurance. And I'm sitting here with Mr. Gary Warner. He is the Director of Research at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, their Center for Information Assurance. Welcome, Gary. Hey, great to be here, Nick. Hey, nice to have you. So uh, we know you're one of the speakers here today. Uh, you've also done a lot of uh, stuff in the past. So uh, can you give me a little uh, intel about what you're doing at uh, UAB? Yeah, things are really uh, exciting in the lab right now. Um, so I run a cybercrime research lab. We call it the Computer Forensics Research Lab. And we're doing a lot of things beyond what the traditional definitions would imply. Okay. A lot of people, when they think computer forensics, they think looking at hard drives. And really what we've extended that to be is forensics means of the courts, if, so I'm talking cyber forensics or computer forensics, any digital evidence that might be presented in the court. So course. smartphones, uh, down to microchips, anything, right? But also emails, websites, online forums, social media, okay. all of those are additional data sources that we consider to be in the umbrella of computer forensics. Awesome. Um, 
tell me a little bit about uh, the stuff you were you're doing with Dark Tower, and uh, specifically you were working on a, a project and uh, Fish Me Fish Me the company actually uh, bought that piece. Is that correct? Well, um, so. About 2012, we rolled a company out of the lab based on our fishing investigations technologies. We had five patents that were filed uh, and awarded in various ways of detecting phishing websites. Mm -hmm. And we were also doing a lot of work in email-based crimes, specifically about malware. So as new malware came in, we would take it apart, evaluate it, run it a lot of times, get a good In a sense. sandbox, of course, in, right? In a sandbox, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but in a, we call it human-driven sandboxing. Uh, when you automate malware analysis, a lot of times what will happen when you get your sandbox result, it says this uh, malware sample talked to this IP address, that's the command and control. Okay, what if that command and control was unavailable? Right. Well, the human-driven sandboxing would then take away infrastructure from the malware and say, okay, now where do you go? Now where do you go? And basically revealing all of the backup layers okay. because what would happen a company would get this indicator of compromise and say, oh, so we'll block that IOC. Well, the malware just went to its secondary or its tertiary, and it may have had five or six or seven different backups that if you only relied on automated sandboxing, you would get, you'd, one. You'd get one, and the malware was still totally successful. So that company was called Malcovery Security, and we sold that to FishMe in uh, 2015. Oh, wow. And then uh, FishMe added that, uh, they called it, um, their intelligence package. So the Fishme's intelligence package was what we did at Malcovery. Awesome. Um, so then ahead. after I left uh, Fishme, Fishme was acquired by Cofence, and that, at that time I went back to the lab, and uh, shortly thereafter we developed a partnership with Dark Tower. The Dark Tower relationship really came out of a desire to help get better placements for our students. So Dark Tower is based in Charlotte where they have great relationships with a lot of financial services companies that they were already doing work with. Well, those companies were having difficulty finding talent. They knew about my lab and the original conversations were, how could we streamline some of your students into uh, great opportunities in the financial services industry? But then they said, what if we don't want to wait for them? What if we could engage the lab while they're still in the lab to start working on projects for those companies. And while they're still in school. While they're still in school. So one of the things in internship programs, a classic internship program, one of the reasons companies engage in internships is they believe that there's a really good chance that if they have this talented student as an intern, they get a chance to check them out. When they graduate, it's kind of a natural thing that people go work for the place they intern. Right. Well, this is the same sort of thing. We build intelligence cells in the lab that can service a client's intelligence needs, mostly in social media, but in any online, any area that fits within that cyber forensics bucket that we talked about earlier. So uh, some of the clients are very engaged, talk to us several times a week, formal weekly meeting with deliverables. Others are more like, hey, look for our stuff. If you find anything, let us know. You know? <laughs> um, and so it, it can go from super formal to pretty, pretty lax. But the thing is, think about having five additional people who are hunting for fraud or, or, or threats or risks against your brand, and then think that you're paying them student wages, but they're trained in my lab, so they're probably about the same skill level as a, someone who's Absolutely. been with your company for several years. Yeah, and then I would want to hire them after they got out. Exactly, because now they already know your problem sets, so it kind of becomes a natural workflow that companies are literally engaging in the lab to increase their chance of being able to hire one of our students. And they'll hit the ground running, so the, the manpower to uh, come up to where an employee should be 
is very minimal. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, there's there's always some cultural things that we have to learn about. How does that company work on the inside right. versus a, an, as, as an outsider? But yeah, they they hit the ground running. A lot of times they're working real world investigations within two weeks. Let's talk about some um, experiential based learning that you had uh, talked about in your speech today. Yeah. So that that idea. I, I'll often lecture to the incoming honors students. And these are some of the brightest kids. I mean, they're really great kids. But what, what they are lacking is direction. And what I tell them is the most important thing for you to, is to find a problem set that you're passionate about as early as you can in your educational experience because it changes everything from that point. So as opposed to doing a homework assignment where I'm trying to get an A and do what the teacher said or the professor said, I'm going, wait, actually that might help me with my theory on how I might cure myosthenia gravis or something. Okay. You know, it's like, yeah. I, they, once you know what your problem set is, everything you're having the opportunity to learn, you're evaluating on is how could this help with my problem set? And so I challenge the students, learn as early as you can in your educational experience, what is it you want to do? And by coming into my lab, they have the opportunity to say, you know, I don't think I want to be a cybercrime analyst if that's what they do. Or they may say, wow, I'm passionate about this. I'm like, great. Now you see why we're focusing more on these programming techniques or these machine learning techniques could really make you a superstar when you graduate to go be a cybercrime fighter. Oh, yeah. And so it gives them a new passion towards their opportunities as a student when they understand how those things could apply to their career. So you're talking about a multidisciplinary approach to, to learning then, right? Right, um, so it's not just what you do in the classroom and what you do in your homework, it's having real world opportunities to put those things to practice for real customers, whether they're government agencies or, or corporations. But on the intelligence side in particular, when we talk about intelligence team building, one of the things you'll hear is you need many different perspectives. You know. If you've got a Intel team that's all built from white men from Birmingham, Alabama, they're gonna have a certain set of, of predispositions that are going to taint their ability to see alternative views of the data. Correct. You want people who speak many languages, who come from many cultures, and who study different things. So I have kids, they love reading political science and intrigue, and they, they, <laughs> they know who's running for office in the Czech Republic next semester in their, or next uh, uh, term in their, uh, in their uh, you know, Senate elections. Whereas a computer scientist can't even name 10 countries in Europe sometimes, right, you know? Right. And well, if I'm trying to put together intelligence packages that have, are about foreign influence operations, for example, foreign governments trying to sway our election, well, you need to be politically aware to be able to analyze that data. So having a, a political science student or a world- That's uh, not even or, a cyber guy or an international or business student right. on the team really helps us with that. Then the other thing is UAB is one of the most diverse universities in the whole country. I think they said we speak 106 languages at wow. UAB. So I had an opportunity where one of our clients was working on hate speech in Burma. Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, we wish- We, we could speak I, Burmese? I, I wish there was someone that <laughs> could help us with this. I'm like, well, we have a history professor whose dissertation was on ethnic conflicts in Myanmar, and why don't we just bring him onto the team? <laughs> and so we, we brought Professor Womack over and he, he mentored the team, helped them understand who the players were in the ethnic map of, of Myanmar, mm -hmm. and then was available 
in a WhatsApp chat <laughs> to, to advise them as they came across, hey, we need somebody who really understands what's going on on the ground in Myanmar to help us understand, are these the bad guys or the good guys? Wow. <laughs> and, and, and we can deliver those kind of services. You know, when the Sri Lanka attacks went down recently, uh, one of our clients was like, we really need to know what are some hate terms or slurs that people might be casting towards certain ethnic groups in Sri Lanka. Well, we went over to the International House and we're like, hey, who do we have that speaks the languages of Sri Lanka? And, and they hooked us up with some. We brought them into the lab for a few days, interviewed them, talked to them, got our hunt set. Okay, now the cyber kids know what they're looking for. Yeah. Thanks for your service. You can go on. But some of those situations, we had chemistry kids who came up to help us learn the terms for fentanyl and opioids. And oh, the so, street terms and every... Well, the chemical terms. The chemical terms. If, I, if they're selling it by the chemical equation, how's one of my cyber kids going to know, oh, that chemical yeah, equation they, they is they fentanyl? Know that. Or, well, you can tell that's a hallucinogen, not a pain medicine, because yeah. look at this structure. <clears throat> we wouldn't know any of that. But we brought the chemists up and they helped us build our collection plan. Some of them got so excited about it, they're like, could I learn that cyber stuff too? <laughs> and we frequently will have that happen where someone will get a master, uh, a bachelor's degree in, in chemistry and then come get a master's in computer forensics because they've had the opportunity to work in the lab and they're passionate about the problem set. Um, a lot of them will go on to be a crime scene investigator or something like mm -hmm. that if, they're, if their undergrad was chemistry or biology and they're interested in this stuff. They're like, now I'm a crime scene investigator who can do the digital evidence and the trace evidence. So that's a good way of, um of scaling cyber techniques that, that you guys are doing at uh, UAB there. Yeah, it's it's working quite well. All right. So, so the, the lab is growing like crazy. Uh, uh -huh. you, you mentioned the Dark Tower partnership. Right, right. So we went from two years ago having 35 students in a lab. Last year we got up to about 50. We're at 90 and we'll probably cross to over 100 by July 1. And, uh, the, and all contracted students, every, every one of them is working for either a corporation or a government agency under contract. And uh, a, lot of this, is a lot of this word of mouth on campus, like, hey, you should really <laughs> go by and check this out? Or Well, the original recruiting method was you had to get an A in one of my classes, <laughs> <laughs> and then I would offer you a gig. Right. But I realized I was limiting my scope by right. doing that. I'm only hiring digital forensic students. Right. And if I wanted to broaden <laughs> that, I needed to bring in people from other disciplines. So yeah, a lot of it is word of mouth. We'll say, hey, we're, we do uh, um, open houses at the beginning of each semester. Hey, bring a Come resume and your transcript. If you've got a 3.0 and are interested in cybercrime or, or cyber intelligence, come spend some time in our lab, learn what we do, and then uh, if you want, stay and, for an interview. And it's helping out with um, your students being hired, right? He, he was telling me earlier about uh, some of your students being hired at a company, and... Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, we, we had... <laughs> some of our students went to work for one of the banks that we'd been doing fishing work with, and uh, the bank had cautioned, you know, well, it may be a couple months before they'll actually get to work on real cases, and they called and apologized to me afterwards, and they said, you know, the students have only been here two weeks and we just had them do a training for our current staff on how to do uh, fishing investigations because they really, it, there's a couple parts to that. They had experience working on fishing with multiple financial institutions. So they weren't just bringing our perspective, they were actually bringing perspective the whole financial from perspective. all of the financial sector that they that had the opportunity to work with. Yeah, so that was a great pat on the back for you. Yeah, it was nice. <laughs> all right, well, Gary, thanks so much for stopping by. Hey, Nick, it was great. Thanks. thanks. Next up is Stephen Bryant with Gate LLC. This was an unscheduled interview. I saw his presentation during the lightning rounds and found it very, very interesting. 
He presented uh, knowledge-based input, reverse flow authentication in identity and access management systems. Here's the interview. And today with me is Mr. Stephen Bryant. He is the chief hacker for a company called Gate LLC. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Hey, thanks for Appreciate taking that. the time out today. And, and the reason I wanted to bring you on is because I saw you speaking over at the lightning rounds about some really cool stuff and you, you drew a really large crowd and I, I couldn't even get to talk to you because there were, were people hounding you after that. So can you uh, tell a little bit about what your speech was about? Appreciate that. Uh, I, I would say it was, uh, it was being mobbed. I would definitely <laughs> not go that far, but it was nice to be, uh, to be received in that fashion and to be able to answer some questions and spend some time with people informing them of the, of the achievements that we have. Okay. So uh, we, were, we were presented last year with the Innovation of the Year Award by the National Cyber Summit and invited this year to come in and speak. Oh, wow, okay. And I wanted to take a chance to, an opportunity to inform people of the, inf uh, of the importance of knowledge-based input when validating identity and access management systems. And so the topic of conversation was uh, reverse flow authentication. What, so, so can you tell our listeners and uh, viewers what is reverse uh, flow authentication? Reverse flow authentication, um, exactly by its name. Normally when you have a, a username and a password, the end user is providing the password, the knowledge that's inside the brain that they want to use to validate they're passing that information into the system and they're inputting it in. And it's usually something simple like the street they grew up on or their pet's name, and they use it over and over and over for all their platforms that they sign into, right? Or, yeah. or they might change the year, the, the you know? The, uh, you're definitely right. The limitation of, of, of passwords is, can be found in uh, the inability of people to recall them with the busyness of life uh, and have so many passwords. So yes, there, there is an instance where they use the similar passwords. But reverse flow authentication discusses about how instead of the user putting in their password that they've created to whatever level of sophistication that they have, that in fact the end user uh, gets to see inside of a gate, as it's called, um, their password displayed amongst other information. And so their object is to pull the tiles with the password characters on it and use those. So they never actually input their password. Their password is demonstrated to them and they pick it out of the gate. Oh wow, okay, so that's part of your IAM strategy? So the identity and access management uh, benefit of reverse flow authentication um, comes in the form of, it allows the user to use knowledge-based input to validate their intent. Okay. And I think a best way to explain that would be, imagine a scenario where you, it's a mistaken identity and you've been arrested and the police officer has your phone and he wants to unlock it. And, and you want to maintain the privacy that you're entitled to. Right. So you want to keep that phone unlocked. But because you have a facial recognition feature to unlock your phone, I could distract you as the police officer. And as you look away and look back, now I have the phone in front of your face and the police officer's unlocked your phone and now has access to all of your information. Right. So knowledge-based input is, is something using in your head and that validates the intent. Not only am I person that I, I claim to be based on my facial recognition, but I want to have that telephone unlocked. And that knowledge-based input allows you to validate the intent that I want the phone unlocked as well. In this case, you don't want your phone unlocked. Right, so you talk about validation. How many um, forms of validation are there? So normally in identity and access management system, currently we have three methods of validation. And they are what you have, mm -hmm. what you are, right. and what you, you know. know. Yeah. And the what you know is what, what we're pushing 
um, as, a, as an essential part of authentication. So maybe it's best to get into the other to explain to what they sure. are. Um, what you have is something like a device, a computer device, uh, a cell phone, uh, a C card, any type of device where you can actually, it's something you possess. Right. Um, only you have that device, so it's a method of authenticating that you have it. The problem with that is, is if you're anything like me, you tend to lose things. So I lose phones or I lose the card or uh, there are banks that provide a little device and it has a different number on it. Once you lose that and miscreants find that, it's there and now in their possession. And they can continue to use it until such time that you inform the authentication system that you've lost it. And that's a what you have. What you are is a little more complex. It's your biometrics. Um, your retina scan, your fingerprints, the facial, facial recognition. These are forms of what you are. And the, the issue with what you are is that once it's compromised, you never get it back. Right. Once I steal your fingerprint, I can continue to use your fingerprint as a form of validation. Again, until the identity and access management system administrator is aware that that's been compromised. And you can never revoke that. Whereas knowledge-based input um, allows you to constantly change the passwords in, in the case of exposure or in the case that uh, you want to change it so that everyone is done. And I, I do want to take a moment to point out that um, as I point out the inadequacies of the uh, what you are mm -hmm. and what you have, what you know is also not a secure form of, of authentication on its own. Right. You, you need a multiple factor of authentication. And I don't want anyone to, to, to be mistaken and to think I'm saying that what you know is sufficient to authenticate. It's not. But it is essential in, in addition to one or a combination of the other what you have and what you are. Okay. So one of the things we also talked about was um, passwords, right? Yes. So inadequacies of passwords. Right. I mean, the traditional inadequacies of passwords has been a result of the exposure of the password. And the exposure comes in two forms. One, when the user is trying to validate through a system and they input the password. And the other is an exposure when either they write it down or someone's using a brute force attack. And I think I'll go through them and explain them okay. to you so that everyone understands. Um, the interception occurs when the user is writing it down. That, that section relates to, there's a username and a field and a password field on my account and I'm trying to log into my email account. And I put my username and my password in. But what I didn't realize was that's not the real place where I log in. It's someone's actually fished me and taken my information now. They put up a page that resembles the page where I'm meant to be authenticating. I didn't realize and I put in my username and my password. So now that's an exposure. Another exposure comes in the form of keystroke logging. So keystroke logging is every time you type a key, mm -hmm. it reports, it takes a log and sends it off in the form of an email possibly. And the miscreant now has every key that you put in. So they know when you've logged in and now they know what your password is. And keystroke loggers go back quite a way to the old electronic typewriters. They used to measure the distance between how far each of the typewriter would move when it was the yeah, ball. Yeah, yeah. And then they would calculate what the possibility of letters were. And uh, then they could compare it against the dictionary to find out what it was. So keystroke loggings occurred. Always been there. It's been there before <laughs> we had keyboards. So it, it predated and a bit of history. Another form is sound. So they could listen and they could record each of your keys. And each key has a subtle difference into it. And so once you listen and amplify those keys, you now can identify which keys you've used for your password. And then, of course, over the shoulder. I'm looking over your shoulder watching you put in your keys. So these are all methods that people were using um, to 
intercept the passwords, which as a result of the end user inputting their password came to be. Brute force is where they continually tried various different combinations of all the letters until they found the password that resembled yours exactly, and then they were able to unlock it. So how does Gate overcome um, these inadequacies? So because the information is not being inputted by the end user, mm -hmm. yeah, with a gate, uh, the information is displayed in a, in a grid of various shapes and sizes, and the customizability of the gate is done by the administrator. And so the level of security that uh, the administrator would like to have is customizable by the administrator. And that statement, and I repeat it, that statement is important because what it does is normally with passwords, when the administrator wanted to increase the level of security, they would put it upon the user to make their password more complex. It must be this many letters. It must have a, a capital. It must have a lowercase. Uh, so you allow the end user, you force the end user to determine the level of security and then you impose upon him the level, uh, uh, you know, extra strain to remember all of this uh, new information that he had or she had to create, which is very difficult. So with, with the gate, it overcomes the exposure of having the password written down because the customizability is done completely by the administrator and doesn't affect the four character pin that the end user uses. Right. It's just the same four character pin, it's just as easy to remember regardless of, of no matter what happens. Okay. The other advantage that it bears is that keystroke logging can no longer be done because you're not inputting it in. All right. And audio recording, you're not because you're clicking a screen. And so those inadequacies as well, along with brute force, because each gate is completely different. All right, so Stephen, can you tell uh, the viewers and listeners how to get in touch with you and what your website is? Sure, if anyone would like to find us, you can find me at Stephen at Minigate. That's M-I-N-N-I-G-A-T-E. I'll say it again, M-I-N-N-I-G-A-T-E dot com, two N's, Stephen at Minigate.com. You can get a hold of me there and I'll be happy to address any concerns or questions that you have. All right, thanks Thank for stopping by. Really appreciate having right. me. Thank thanks. you very much. To learn more about the National Cyber Summit and register for this year's event, visit them on the web at nationalcybersummit.com. Thanks for taking time out of your day to spend with me listening or viewing this podcast. Please tell your friends and associates about InfoSec Sync and subscribe on your favorite platform. Please send any comments, questions, or requests to me, Nick, at InfoSecSync.com. And as always, thanks for staying in sync with InfoSec Sync. That's it for this episode. Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. And as always, thanks for staying in sync with InfoSec Sync.